Latitude podcast. My name is Lamont, and I'm your host. This episode is with Dominique de Hartmann. Dom is the chief strategy officer at Uber. Uber, spelt double O-B-A, is a leading financial services provider to consumers in the residential property sector in SA. In many ways, as we all know, South Africa is a tale of two countries. Residential property is no different. My eyes were seriously opened to the nuances of our property sector as a result of this conversation. Dom and I cover a range of topics, and I think those that are interested in the dynamics of our property sector may well enjoy it. We talk about the backlog of residential property supply that exists across all bands in the country. Interestingly, we talk about the huge unexploited opportunity in the middle market in South Africa. I had no idea the magnitude of this opportunity, nor the price point at which it can be exploited. I think the average listener will be surprised by some of the insights Dom reveals. We also talk about the lack of innovative financing alternatives that could unlock more of the latent potential in the residential property sector in SA. We talk also about the effects of semigration on the property prices and trends, the typical ebb and flow of residential property shifts, and where and why some of these are manifesting in South Africa at the moment. I realized some of my basic intuitions about the sector are off the mark. And so I learned a lot. I suspect others that are not industry insiders may also find it illuminating. Dom is a smart chap, a solid, disciplined thinker, and he's super engaged with his work and his industry. I enjoyed chatting to him very much. And now I bring you Dominic de Hartmann. Dom de Hartmann, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Great. So, do you want to just take this opportunity to intro yourself? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I'm Dominique de Hartmann. I'm a Chief Strategy Officer for Uber. Uber is a financial services business that works in residential real estate. We exist to empower people to own their own homes. And we do that in a number of different ways, predominantly through access to finance. Okay. Property is the biggest asset that most individual people own or will ever own. And then obviously investors in the country are also looking to, you know, is it a good idea to invest in property? Is it not? So our audience is going to be those people, people that have these assets and particularly investors as well. But our audience is also going to be entrepreneurs. So maybe a little later in the podcast, we might explore some of the opportunities where people could be creating businesses in this space. But why don't we just start with returns on property? Where are they going? Where's good in the country? Where's bad? Yeah, so it's a very, it continues to be a very dynamic market. And you're increasingly seeing different provinces perform at different rates. So just really interestingly, last month, the, the Eastern Cape has the highest property price growth in the whole country. So okay. probably have some base effect happening, but somewhere just short of 8% year-on-year price growth, which is pretty significant, actually. And the free state, for example, is the leading province for first-time home buyers. So you're like, well, sure, that's unexpected, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, what's going on there, yeah. like in those two examples? What's happening? So I think Eastern Cape is... Some of that stuff is driven by semigration, PE particularly. You're finding 
because he actually had it, it is a pretty strong university town. And so lots of people are, went, went, studied there and then went and, you know, Gauteng, well, that's where we go to make our money. And then during COVID, I'm like, oof, maybe we must actually go back home. Yes. And so there was a fair amount of that going on. And you're increasingly, you know, given hybrid work, given lifestyle choices, people are, are going in those directions. Cape Town is, is ex- the property prices are, like it's expensive in Cape Town. Yes. And KZN, what, what, sorry, just one little step back. So what was happening is we had, before the drought, we had this consistent flow from all around the country into, into the Western Cape. The droughts then, and the, the real threat of day zero, that had a real effect. And people then started actually going to KZN. And then what you found there was the, the, the property market in KZN was absolutely booming. And it coincided with Tonga Tulit basically getting out of, out of sugar farming and converting huge swathes of land into, into developments, residential estates. So people are looking for value. And that's what's driving the yes. price growth in the Eastern Cape because it's, it's accessible and in terms of the price point. And that's, you know, that you have the classic economic effect. Okay. Yeah, yeah I just want to double click on that semigration effect quickly. What's been going through my mind is, yeah, okay, cool. So the fact that we can now work remotely, this increased level of mobility without losing economic potential is great because now everybody can redistribute the pieces on the puzzle board of their wealth. They can look for value. They can live in a beautiful place like the Eastern Cape. They can go to KZN. So you can make more sort of lifestyle and value choices at the same time without compromising on your work, we hope. Mm. At least that's the theory. I'm interested to know if this – so this is not property price growth in different regions that are lifting – the value of residential property across the country. This is more like taking value out of one place and putting it in another. It is a bit of a zero-sum game, right? A bit of an equalization that's happening. Are we just mm. redistributing the value of property in generally? No, I don't think so. Is it so, growing? So there, there is some of that, but there is a very significant housing backlog in South Africa across all of the price bands. Okay. I haven't looked at it recently, but did a whole bunch of research around this probably about a year ago now, looking at all the different bands, price bands. And in the mid-market, so so I mean what you actually would think is the mid-market is is probably higher than, you know, what we talk about the mid-market, we're like, oh, you're probably talking about a property for 2 million rand, right? That's not the mid-market. What is the mid-market? Mid-market's probably around 500 to 750. Oh, uh, wow. Yes. Okay. So there's such a significant housing backlog there that at the current rate of new units being added to the market, like new builds, it would probably take over 100 years to catch up to the current required demand. Is, can, can that demand get the bond for a 500,000? Yes. 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 Okay, so that the money's there. Yeah, yeah, so there's a... It's a supply there's side There's a credit, constraint. yeah, there's absolutely a supply. And this is a fascinating dynamic actually in the market. Yes. Because there's a, there's a, a classical... A symmetry problem. Developers, property developers, don't develop units for that market because they don't believe that they're buyers. Buyers don't use the credit access that they have 
for property because they don't believe that they can access it. So that is a, it's a fascinating opportunity to dramatically improve the lives of people and the, like, from an investment perspective, to drive significant value creation. So it's not we're taking money from whatever, we're taking value out of Gauteng and putting it in the Western Cape. It's not that. Mm. There, is, there is market capacity uh, on demand from a demand perspective that is not, it won't be saturated for at least 100 years. Now this is, fat. now this is a nugget. The mid-market is five to 700,000 rand. Mm. And these have jobs, can get the bonds, mm. they'll qualify. No one's building it because they don't think the market's there. Yes. So talk to me about possibly there's another constraint. And because in a, that I'm in a sort of affordable housing development in Joburg, and we've been quite strategic there. We've managed to put it right next to a high-value area, but we managed to do it with a low cost for the land. So it makes sense from, a, from an investment perspective, but the people there can live close to where they work. So there's the spatial apartheid thing. I just want to ask you, how does the, 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 the possibilities to build for this excess demand are they restricted not only by the lack of knowledge that developers have that this market exists, but also restricted by the geographic locations where these places can be put or not? Yeah, there's definitely some of that. So, and this is actually one of the reasons why Cape Town property is so expensive, is you are genuinely constrained. You, 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 can't, you can't move the mountain or the sea to yes. put properties there. Yes. So what town planners and increasingly are paying attention to are the idea of corridors. And this is not a new idea. So how do we create transport corridors mm. that will allow the connection of the, the connection of or allow mobility in the population so that economic activity and the center of production can be effectively accessed. Yes. Yeah. So there is. So if you look the West Coast West Coast suburbs, so all the way up the up there. So the reason that there's so much densification out that way is because of there's there's land. Yeah. Yeah. Accessible, affordable yes. land. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and it's the the cost of the cost of land assembly, and the it, it, it's not that expensive because yes. you don't have to move a mountain. Sure. So quite a lot needs to come into alignment to expose the opportunity, I guess. Like, does town planning and zoning regulations need to shift a little bit? Or, I mean, can can a developer now who hears this podcast thinking, "Oh wow, there's a whole market of people that can afford five hundred to seven hundred thousand rand space. Let me just go build." You got to be a bit smarter than that, I assume, right? Sure. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, so, so actually, where are these people? Yes. So where, 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 are, where do they live and where do they work? And um, what, is their actual, what is their actual disposable income? So if, if, I don't know, let's say we are going to go and, which is happening right now actually. So in Deep River, for example, there, there are parcels of land in Deep River, which is on transport corridor, has good access to infrastructure, is actually relatively close to two highways the people are starting to develop there. Yes. And but you have to think about so that's that's a positive example. 
Yes. Because people that they are close to work, they ca- they're not going to have to displace a whole lot of the money that they could invest to buy property because now that's going to no longer be available for that that spending. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So where these people are is, is an important part of that puzzle. So this, this information asymmetry problem I was talking about, yes. the solution to this problem actually is it's information production. Uh, yes. So how do we connect with the, the people that are in this market? How do mm. we genuinely understand what they can afford and look at their actual, their, their spending patterns as a means of producing information about actually what's their desire for housing investment, what's their capacity for investment, and where actually, like spatially, where are they? Yes. And so, so it's almost like a spatial spending pattern. So you can't just give them a house anywhere because that changes their yes. spend and then changes the affordability sort of profile. Yeah. Thank you. Ah, amazing. Yeah, I love that. So, I mean, it's interesting because we are sitting here in the Latitude Apart Hotel in in Cape Town and we have a beautiful view of Lion's Head behind us. Even the president's house is up there. I was um, just waving at him. Hello, number one. <laughs> but the whole ethos of this place, which is so interesting, is on the other side. So this is this is the prime real estate ethos. So it's almost one of the guys that leads this place has done a whole bunch of very interesting statistical research on what it means to have prime real estate. And you've got a you've got a typically you've got a constrained geographic location, but the combination of the architecture and the natural landscape creates for an iconic constraint. And then around, so people want to be there. And then because you've got infrastructure that's developed to support that iconic constraint, you sort of it's 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 positively trapped it's like a little mm. gilded cage right and in fact if you look at it those prices just go up and up and up and up and prime real estate the market just clears they never place this sitting on sale for very long it clears so fast in comparison to the rest of the market it's it just feels like it's a self-perpetuating thing i love the the way you describe it positively trapped so actually that in respect of property development and that's really what we should be trying to do because and it's it's important economically and for the the end user because if you don't create that that gain effect the you'll find the equity reversing across all types of of property mm. so Situations like you find in New Zealand now where there's negative equity in properties and the prices are going backwards, it's a real problem for everyone. And outside of some government intervention, you can't turn that thing around. Mm. And it, it essentially over time could become a contagion. Mm. So this, the idea of creating a situation where things are positively trapped, so it's not just about... And this, sorry, and this is a part of a problem about the way that we developed all those RDP houses. Is like, it was it's fine to put these things up, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a great place to be. Yes, and and so people don't. I mean, they live there because it's better than something else. But actually, it didn't it didn't have the community development effect 
or the economic development effect mm. that was intended by by the original reconstruction development plan. May even have had the opposite in some. Yeah, definitely, okay. it, it definitely did. So the, I mean, I, I don't know if people. I'm sure people know this, but the 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 intention with those RDP houses was to do both of those things. So how do we create dignity? How do we improve the like build the community? Mm. But also, how do we how do we start? How do we in, give people assets so that they can become economically engaged and active, mm. and not not just like here's some money, do something, but a real asset that this that combines the community benefits and the economic benefit. That was the underpinning of that whole plan, mm. and it hasn't really worked for lots of reasons we can talk about. But yeah. and that also actually is a is a very significant opportunity for uh, for investment, really. So I've been, I'm interested in, just want to sort of connect a couple of threads there. So the one thing that I'm super interested in, I'm chatting, I'm having a series of conversations with this young guy who's a black African guy, and he's, he's focusing on building a formalizing business that is already happening in the informal sector. And so this is stuff that isn't counted in GDP officially, et cetera. And it's, it's a huge economy by some estimates, right? It's not as if if you're not part of official GDP numbers, there's no economy for you. Like a lot of people without jobs in South Africa actually are working and they're making cash and they're surviving. It's very survivalist, but there's a big economy happening there. And, you know, then there's another thread that we, there's a property rights and ability to secure an asset which you can lend against thing that unlocks a whole new financial world of possibility. Okay, so we're on that topic now. Mm. What is the level of uncaptured un, un capital, let's mm. say, because we don't have the right policy framework about property rights in place in South Africa? Yeah, so that's. I just want to go back one little bit. Cool. So uh, you'd be surprised about which suburb in the Western Cape or in Cape Town, in the broader has the the highest number of building plans approved. Hmm. And it has been like that for probably the past maybe 24 months. You you, you wouldn't be, a, it's Kailiche. Yeah, oh, amazing. Yes. So the highest and probably like 40% more than anywhere else. So these are formal, proper building plans. Okay. And these are people, property entrepreneurs. Yes. Building, building units. Rental units. Okay. So if, you know there were four, six units in a so not not high rise stuff. Yes. But access accessible like that, and these are people that are employed. They probably earning I don't know twenty five thirty thousand rand a month, if that. The developers or the renters? No, the the developers. Oh right. And they're so in terms of where is their opportunity. There is no formal fine or no accessible development finance for those kind of people. Oh wow! They're maxing out personal loans at cash build, credit cards, pawning vehicles. Okay. That's what's happening, and they're incrementally building these things, and they're doing, and they're they're like these are smart young people, and they're formally doing it because they're saying they're they again housing backlog. 
Okay. So there's no finance product that allows those people to create buildings on mass there. Yeah, so there's no scalable development finance, residential development finance. And so I think there's lots of really nice opportunity there because, well, you again, they are not subject to this information asymmetry because they live in that community and they, they know what's going on and they're connected with people and they, go, they can see that people need places to live. So why are financial services providers not creating these products? So I think there's real opportunity to create alternative funding mechanisms. So digitized crowdsourcing type of lending okay specific to this yes. and you could take we could learn a lot of like financial derivative products from agriculture where it's not the farm necessarily that is used to secure the the loan it is the output so you could base the line of credit on the rental potential okay interesting um, so I think there's there's some there's something real there. Yes. And, and so your question, why are the banks essentially, why are they not there? Because they're the banks. They take their job of managing risk very, very seriously. Yes. And they're not really always clear on how to assess this risk. Okay. And so there are mortgages, there are bonds happening, but they they're priced poorly. And it's not res- it's not development finance. Mm. It's not specifically geared for that thing. So um, in the same way now that you have innovative financing products around small business or people that don't have the traditional sort of ways of coming across as de-risked to mm. a bank, you probably need that same sort of financial innovation from the outside. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the people in the banks that are developing – the product, they don't live in those communities. So they don't understand it. Yes. They don't understand what's going on in there. Yes. That's just the reality. The no, it's understandable. It's not what they've been trained to do, right? No. There's this sort yeah. of institutional momentum around a different kind of strategy, and that's very hard mm. to change. But it's, it's that classic innovation thing. That's why it comes from the outside, because someone else has can take the risk. Yeah. I hope it comes, hey? I want to see people in homes feeling... That's what this country needs, right? Mm. People feeling less desperate. <laughs> yeah. And if the opportunities are there, that's that's amazing. I just wanted to say that what's also important here is that people need different types of accommodation. So not everyone wants to own a property. So there is – and that's part of what has, has contributed to the housing – I mean, and I think it's fair to say it's a crisis, is that – People like RDP, as an example, all available investment went into creating housing units that were where there was asset transfer. Here it is. This is yours. You live here now. And there's a ton of migrant work. There's a ton of people that go to stay at a university or whatever. Those people, they need rental accommodation, some long-term, some short-term, uh, some hostels. Like yeah. the, you, you need different types of accommodation yeah. and it's changing a little bit, but a lot of uh, kind of the, the mindset around, oh, okay, we're going to invest in property. So how does that actually work? So either people are building units for sale and those are probably like some of the, like the, maybe the bigger scale or they're doing very specific, well, I'm going to buy something and then rent it out. A long-term to yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And now I suppose Airbnb and those things have created a, this swathe of short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. But there's a ton of other stuff actually, the other ton of other types of accommodation mm. which people need. Mm. And I'm talking about migrant work. I'm not talking necessarily about there's a family out in the Eastern Cape and someone's now working in the Western Cape. Mm. Even the, the amount of money people spend on transport just yeah, in the city. So the, the point I was trying to make is that you need to look at this space, not just as, as it's not just one thing. Yes. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, that thing that you talk about transport, I love the idea that one can think creatively about the mix. And I, you, you'd like to always like to know where your revenue is coming from. So you sort of source it. So I'm thinking about that again, about that affordable housing units that we invested in in Joburg. So the whole idea there was, allow people to live close to where they work. But what's actually going on, if you talk to the people in our development there, they love it, right? It's dignified living close to work. They feel great. They'd work on time. They feel safe at night, etc. But they're maintaining two residences. They go home over the weekend. Mm. And so their costs haven't come down. They are paying me rental from their unused transport cost, plus a little bit more. It's not quite where you want it to be, right? you so it's interesting one could make it a little bit more of a hostile kind of thing or open to more people, mm. the f increase the fluidity of it. Mm. I wanted to double-click and sort of go back to, I mean, a question I had on my mind and I really wanted to get your your opinions on this. So I've got this anecdotal piece of evidence. A mutual friend of ours, I was at their place for a braai and they had someone else over who lives in Joburg. And that person's from one of the traditional old school white suburbs in Joburg, you know, and just for the sake of the audience, you and I are middle-aged white guys. So I lived in that area for a long time and I never lived next to anybody but white people. Okay. And so now there's no electricity and potholes in Joburg and Cape Town's better run and there's nicer places to be. And so, you know, in our circles, and I'm, I'm seeing people move to Cape Town or semigrate to other places and there's this kind of a, like a, a doom and gloom because they're having to sell their house. They're having to move away from a place that used to be a certain way and is no longer that way anymore. So you can understand they moved to better lives in their minds. But anyway, this person that was at the Bri was from Joburg, just visiting Cape Town. And she lives in one of these areas. And I brought the topic up. So I said to her, you know, how do you feel about what's going on and the property prices happening there? And she's, she's white middle-aged like us. She said to me, you know, Lamont, when the person that I lived next door to, when my neighbor sells their house in a half at less than what they think it's worth and they move to Cape Town, the person that moves in, it's someone that was able to get a bond, works at a local bank, and my community is changing in a positive way. I now live next door to people that I never lived next door to before. But also when you socialize and speak to those people, this is her telling me that, those people are like, oh my God, I can finally mm. afford a house like this in this area, close to these banks, close to this shopping center, close to this. That's and, cool. And for them, it's like unbelievable. Mm. And they can now finally afford it because the white middle-aged persons had to sell it in a half, didn't get what they want for it. And I was thinking, well, that's fantastic. I mean, totally we need our, our communities to integrate more like that so that we can, I mean, there are various benefits mm. to that, of course. 
But something that's quite cool is like the redistribution of wealth that never happened. Well, there it is, right? So this guy thinks he's getting a capital hit when he sells his house, but it's going to the new person who could never afford to buy it before. Mm. Fantastic. Mm. What do you think of that? Yeah, I love that. And actually, that's how housing markets work. So you have this idea of, of like pools and chains. So you have these pools of properties. And if you look at, at the housing markets over long periods of time, you'll find that, you know, as the, the value of that property deteriorates for whatever reason, uh, or the accessibility to that property changes because it's uh, maybe it's locality to the center of production uh, or this situation, potholes, people leave, whatever economic change, etc. cetera. Mm. The unit moves and then you have filling of people who previously couldn't yeah. access that. So actually housing markets work like that. And it's wonderful to, it's wonderful to, to hear this anecdotal story because that is, and, and again, going back to the RDP strategy, that was what it was supposed to be. Yes. So the economic Kickstarter that those houses were supposed to give families was supposed to do that. So you, know, you could now sell that property uh, and you could use that as a means of actually then gearing essentially uh, to access, yeah. It's almost like a de-gentrification, mm. uh, positive, mm. you know, or decalcification of those those environments, people could just never yeah. never knock on those yeah. doors. And and this always happens. If you look at how 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 towns and cities work, the centrality of the production and how close that property is to that center determines in a big way its value. Okay, so we're going we're also going back to this positively trapped story, and then over time, the households make economic decisions. Actually, it's too expensive to live here. It's cheaper to to live further away from the center of production and to transport, uh, and then over time people move out because they go they go further and further away, and you have this like concentric outward movement. Yes, and then the, the center of where it was is now no longer of any value, or well, not any value, but the value has deteriorated. Yes, and then people move in, and gentrification and regeneration occurs, and then you have these. Uh, it will come to me, but in spatial development, they talk about specifically this, how cities start off by having one center and then two centers because of this effect that occurs. And just even look, just look around. So downtown Johannesburg used to be that, and then it became Santon. And then, now, so, so that's happened. So yeah, city of Cape Town. So it was, here's where it was at. And now it's Century City yes. and Westlake Business Park. That's what's happening. So Cape Town is a bit different because you have it's such a beautiful city and you have the like the spatial value is, is not just about the about means of production. Yes. Yes. It's interesting this part in Cape Town. Like I feel like there's some places in Cape Town that are quite interesting that keep sort of they hold this promise that is never delivered. Uh, mm -hmm. like there's a little pocket of sea point here and, and the wealth seems to come at it from both sides mm -hmm. but it just can't make the final mm. squeeze I don't know what's there that's calcifying that connection mm. in the middle of sea point there that um, is interesting so like Woodstock 
Yeah, and Woodstock what's as well. Happened, well uh, Salt River, like what's ha- I mean, Woodstock is actually the best example. Yes, so it that just thing, never goes anywhere. Yeah, Musenberg. Yeah, but what is happening? Why is that not done yet? People yeah. keep taking a punt. I mean, that, there's that Hilton Hotel in Woodstock, which I think every time I drive past it, I'm like, oh, I'm mm. not sure who rolled the dice on that mm. one. But if they still have their job, I'd be surprised. <laughs> I just wrote down a few things that I thought might be interesting here. So go for it. In terms of in property investment. Our core business at Uber is, is mortgage origination. And so we see some of the data we collect is what is the use of the loan? And so the investor, the buy-to-let customer that Uber is seeing now, it's in the Western Cape, it's the highest it's ever been. It's, it's 28% of all new home loans in the Western Cape are buy-to-let, 28%. It's, it's the highest it has ever been. Oh, wow. Yeah. And What's a low? Just give us an idea of a range there. What's a low in the percentage? So uh, right now in Joburg, it's 3%. Oh, wow. Buy to let, it's 3%. Yeah, 3%. Yeah. And that's, it, it's eroded like very significantly over the past probably two years. And Joburg returns have always been much better because the capital deployed and the yield return through rent has been much better. Cape Town... Is not as good, actually. Because property prices are generally yes, high. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the ability to demand higher rents not doesn't really. match that. Yeah. yeah, so I think it's it's really interesting that because people are, well, one, property developers always lag the market because they don't, again, like you have an information asymmetry problem. Yes. There's no way to really forecast what's going, like when... When are people going to be in the market to buy? So they're always, 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 and it's always been like this. Yes. Always lags the market. So and you, so you'll find rate. But declines. then they probably overshoot it as well. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's happening now is it's actually a good time. It, probably developers are in a very, very good position now because you have this you have this effect where people are wanting to live here in the Western Cape because the municipal performance is really good. And the developers have been putting units or building units and putting them onto the market mm. behind lagging the actual interest rate cycle. Mm. And they're very lucky now because this hasn't really ever happened before. There are people able to buy uh, even though the interest rate's doing what it's doing because of how many people are wanting to come into the Western Cape. I'm very interested to know, now you bring up this buy to let and you, well, talk to me about it. I'm a little, well, quite uninitiated. I'm classic, you know, just got a normal bond. And as far as I'm aware, that's all I can get. Then, but in the UK, there was all sorts of stuff. Mm. Like you could, you could remortgage, you could have a buy to let mortgage, which is interest only. There are various options, variable rates and fixed rates, and, and that can even change over time. Why do we not have that level of financial innovation in our lending products for residential real estate? It's a great question, which I don't really know the answer to. Okay. So in the UK in particular, you have product-based mortgages. So these things are specifically for accountants, or these things are for young professionals. These things are for renters. Da, da, da. These things are for buy-to-let investors. Yes, okay, yes. yes. Okay, and these things, by things, I mean the, the mortgage. Yes. Okay. So yes. it's the, it's product-based, and in South Africa, they call them product, but not really. It's risk-based. Yes. So 
what the bank is doing here is it's 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 evaluating the risk. Yes. And it's not it's not productizing it. And in some ways, I think one of the contributors to this is is we have a very different interest rate environment. So if you think about the UK, they've had very, very low rates mm. for a very, very long time mm. because it's such a mature and developed market. And so the actuaries, the, the, the innovation around the product, lots of those tenants are set. So the interest rate, it, there will be some change in interest rates up and down, but the the, got, the quantum of variation is much, much smaller. Yes, you've got a predictable stability in your yes, interest rate, yes. which allows you to innovate around the products. Yes, I, and I, you don't have that. In South Africa, it's a, you have a different story because partly it's a developing market and partly because it's a much smaller market. Totally. So maybe the market's not big enough to formalize this kind of financial flexibility in the lending market, but it is kind of there. So I... And many people like us have relationships where we can speak to our bank about the stuff that's happening in our lives that's non-traditional. So, you know, if let's say, for instance, you're a typical man of the street and you've got a buy-to-let investment. You have no choice other than to do a typical, what is your house worth and how much do you earn and can you service that loan? That's the discussion, right? There's no, no, but I'm going to rent it out. And that's part of the income that comes in. That won't count. Even if you've got a rental history on that property, the bank typically won't count that rental income. Or they'll count such a small amount Mm -hmm. of it, right? I think that that, and so you sort of get this, don't you just completely hamper what a latent buy-to-let demand by not having products specifically delineated, okay, these are the conditions under which you can have a successful buy-to-let investment. And why not have an interest-only buy-to-let investment if you've got enough of a yield to cover those costs, right, and just let the capital appreciate over time? Surely there's financial instruments that could... I, I don't know. I see, I it, as, I see it as a possibility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So there, I think that interest-only thing is... The interest-only product is it would be an interesting conversation to explore because the mechanics of it financially are possible, but the bank would require a return at some point. So you'd need to have some sort of a fixed exit mechanism to return the capital, which, yeah, I'm not saying that's not a reason to do it, but I think this is a this is an interesting product conversation to have. But so I just want to go back one little bit. Some of this depends on structuring. So if you're buying property as an individual, oh, so Mr. DeHartman is going to buy whatever, that unit over there, and he's going to rent it out. And the deed is in my name and the session to the bank. Those dynamics are there. So they'll evaluate my income. They'll take maybe a portion of the rent and never the whole rent. So... If you, if you buy that in a company, the dynamics of that are different because now, so we create a company, whatever, Dom and Lamont's property holdings, PTY, and we use that company as the vehicle to buy these things. And so we still would stand surety for repayment, but the business of this entity is to buy and to let 
And so that entity's revenue streams then will be considered to provide credits to. So that is possible today. Yes, I'm sure we can engineer our way into what we're describing, right? But if you can do that, then the banks might as well have a product to do. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And, and, and you say, you know, if you create friction to do something, I understand what you're saying, but the man on the street that wants to do that, yeah, yeah. Like, he's got to put that all together. Yeah. Right? Um, and there's no cost because now, you know, you need an accountant and you need to do your returns. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's sort of unnecessary. It's it's locked up, but I reckon people want to do it, right? I mean, I, I would do it in a heartbeat. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And you can build up an asset base so much quicker, right? You can yeah. Just, yeah. So South African banks are too conservative. I mean, that's the bottom line. Mm. So... I, don't, I can't remember exactly what the what the ratio is now, but the Basel requirements, the liquidity requirements, I think it's eight percent. So the liquidity relative to the to the assets, the loans that are held by the bank, and that's the buffer that those regs require. Yes. South African banks are at thirteen percent. Why? Why be so low? Yeah, yeah. Not you know, they're holding more than the regulations require. Yes, yeah. So w- why? Why have such a low appetite for risk? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there it is. Like you have, why Why is that? It's all wasted. Yeah. Hmm. And you, so we're talking about property here. But during COVID, the scheme that was, the government scheme that was deployed through the Reserve Bank to provide essentially business rescue support, well, not rescue support, but, but like liquidity support, that there was a ton of money that was made available, almost like at 0% interest, and it was supposed to be deployed through the banks. It is ridiculous how little of that money was actually uh, given to, to businesses. Not given, but, but made out as loans to businesses. Mm. It was so small. And I know lots of people who have businesses who try to access that, and, and they couldn't. Because the the banks they were too conservative, even though they wouldn't even have to have the the risk on that. Mm. If there were defaults on that thing, the Reserve Bank was underwriting it. They didn't give the loans out. Why not? Dom, this has been a great conversation. We've been talking for an hour already, and I oh. you know, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything you think we should have covered that we didn't cover, and that you just you know that you want to put out there? No, I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about. I mean, I hope that this has been valuable from an investor perspective. It'd be great to, that, you know, that thing we were talking about, the mid-market, people yes. don't know, they don't develop because they don't know, people don't buy. It would be, it, I, I'd love to spend some time at some point, maybe in a different conversation, talking specifically about that. Yes. Uh, it's such a massive opportunity. Yes. And it's such, it's a real need, actually. You know, so if we can, if we can, Create, apply South African entrepreneurial spirit to that space will create real value, real like investor returns and have genuine societal impact positively. So there's, there's a lot to talk about there and the more people know about it or think about it, you know, if we can see that kind of stuff into people's minds, like, oh, this is maybe a space yes. and they can apply their ingenuity into doing that, it, it would it would be wonderful. So there's no secrets to keep there. It's like, yeah, so that's something that one day we can maybe spend some more time on. Absolutely. I'd like to do that soon. Well, I couldn't think of a better way to end this pod. Dom, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been really wonderful. Mm-hmm.